0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bp show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is 5 bucks a month, and you get access to daily commentary. And every week, we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow.
2: Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show.
3: Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday. We are live from Washington, D.C. This is Chris Lu, guest hosting the Bill Press Show on a uncharacteristically kind of warm and rainy, muggy uh, December morning here. We've got a lot to cover. I am joined in studio as always. Uh, by Bill's uh, trusty producers, Peter and Ray. Welcome to both of you.
2: Hey, Chris, how you doing?
3: I am great. What's Th- going on with the weather? You just <laughs> mentioned the weather.
2: What the hell is going on? I, you know,
3: we had kind of low 40s all week, and suddenly I get up this morning. It's 62 degrees outside. It is. It, it, it feels It's muggy. It's rainy. It is. Uh, it is not holiday weather right now. Not at all. So we've got a busy day. And I was I was saying to Peter, as I was prepping yesterday afternoon, I had kind of a lineup of things I wanted to do. And then, as always happens, Donald Trump upends everything. You know, what's wonderful is we've got some great guests. Uh, you know, one of the wonderful privileges about guest hosting this show is I just invite my friends to come in and be guests. And so we've got three wonderful Obama administration colleagues coming in to talk about the work that they are now doing as part of the resistance and what's remarkable about all three of them is that they've got wide uh, expertise and so i think we're gonna have to be nimble this morning because we got a lot of news to cover from last night and i suspect there will be more happening in the next two hours but I'm i t- hope you stretched before yeah we well the i, I i'm told peter this is, this is this is this is par for the course around here yeah <laughs> so before we get to that let's get to some headlines this is the full court press. All righty,
2: just a couple of other stories making news. You see the story about the Soyuz? The uh, they came <laughs> back from st- some space. Three space station crew members returned to Earth yesterday. They were up on the International Space Station for six months. Six months they were up there. Uh, it's a NASA astronaut, a German astronaut, and a Russian cosmonaut were all up there for six months. They, uh, they safely touched down in Kazakhstan yesterday, early, early, early morning. They were one minute ahead of schedule. Like I said, they were in space for a total of 197 days. They were working as part of two
3: different expeditions that were up there in space. It's funny, I, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing one of the final space shuttle launches. And I think since the space shuttle has gone away over the last couple of years, and we've really outsourced the space program to other countries. It, yeah. it kind of has disappeared off of the radar of most Americans. What you've just described is remarkable. But the fact that they're landing in Kazakhstan versus and having versus having you know a NASA uh, a plane or U.S. Air Force plane picking them up is remarkable.
2: I, I'm one of those people that that uh, was really, really, really bummed out when we started cutting back on the NASA space program under Barack Obama. Uh, Because this is one of the greatest things that we have done as a country. And I know that it it might not seem so obvious, but you think about some of the technology that's come from the space program, like seatbelts, microwaves. Lots of other really uh, helpful things that we use in everyday life that you don't necessarily associate with space travel came from the NASA
3: space program. And, and lest you forget, Peter, the the drink that astronauts drink. Tang! Tang. tang.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also Tang. Tang. Uh, life-saving seat belts, lots of great <laughs> conveniences, and also, yes, you're right, Tang. Tang. Uh, so a new study just came out shows that we are pretty obese as a society. A new report says that the average U.S. adult is just a few pounds away from obesity. Uh, we are getting wider, not <laughs> taller, in other words. This, of course, comes right as we enter the uh, last stretch before Christmas. So all the cookies and cake and heavy dinners and things like that Uh think about that before you have a second survey. so
3: is it we're getting wider or the airplane seats are getting narrower <laughs> that's a very good or point it's probably both happening at probably
2: the same. both at the same time yeah again the uh center for disease control records they've been keeping records since the early 1960s uh the average man was a little over five feet eight inches tall and weighed 166 pounds uh today's average height is five foot nine uh and which is a little bit shorter than we were a decade ago and uh we're all getting heavier
3: if you ever want to know how overweight we all are as people, uh, take a look at, just just Google body mass index, the BMI scale, and put yourself on there. And I think even if you are, you consider yourself fairly fit, uh, you're going to be heavy. This is The Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone, and happy Friday from Washington, D.C. This is Chris Lou, guest hosting The Bill Press Show, a frequent guest, uh, sometimes guest host. Uh, it is fun to be here on a Friday, and, and as I learned when I came in here, today is the last live show for The Bill Press Show for the year, and we're going to have some fun. And I'm joined, as always, by Bill's producers, Peter and Ray. Peter, good, great to see you.
2: We're already in party mode. We are. <laughs> we're in party mode. I'm going to be honest. This is
3: this is our last show. I, if I, we were drinking, that would be... Have, we, have you all ever done a live drinking and... Oh, yes. You have? To- well, I, Chris, I'll tell you about our 420 show another day.
2: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> when, when when we all got high in studio, but we do drinking shows. I'm glad you actually brought that up because we are off next week. Uh, we're gonna take we're gonna take some time off. However, we have been working very, very very hard the last couple of weeks. we've been putting a lot of stuff on tape so that next week when we're gone, we're all going to be wherever we're going for Christmas, there will be new brand new content uh, that you can get. On our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and also our podcasts. You've got to check out our podcasts because we're putting up new stuff every day while we're gone. Uh, you can find more information at billpressshow.com, or if you just go to Apple Podcasts or any way that you get your podcast and look for The Bill Press Show, uh, you'll be able to get it. One of the things that we did do, in case you're wondering how to celebrate, is we did a whole segment on holiday beers <laughs> With our buddy Greg Engert from Blue Jacket, a great brewery here in town, uh, and we 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 got tanked. We got tanked. We got tanked in the morning, and uh, we put it on tape. And so you can, if you have any questions about like how to serve beer over the holidays, or what are some cool, fun beers you might want to try, or some different fun styles, we got you covered.
3: And, and and does the quality of the conversation change throughout the course of the broadcast?
2: <laughs> Let's just say it spirals a it little spirals. bit. Let's just say it spirals <laughs> a little bit. It's- the, it, it, uh, we did a, a great roundtable uh, from some White House reporters. We did a roundtable with some congressional reporters. Uh, we talked about the year in the alt right and the rise of white supremacy in the country. Um, we also had a great debate over whether or not Die Hard is actually a Christmas movie. <laughs> and we talked about some of our favorite Christmas movies. Anyway, there's a lot of great content out there uh, that we're going to be putting up next week. Uh, if you're listening in Chicago uh, or if you're listening, if you listen to the podcast, Wherever you get it, we're going to still have you covered uh, the next week and a half or so.
3: Well, that's a great plug. And we'll keep plugging throughout the day because it is wonderful content. And Ray and Peter have told me about it. And I will certainly be listening next week uh, during my week off as well. This, again, is Chris Liu guest hosting for The Bill Press Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris 44. One of the fun things about hosting this show is not only the chance to talk about interesting topics, hear from our listeners, but it's a chance also to uh, invite some of my friends in. So we've got a great lineup of guests today. All three are people who served in the Obama administration, had distinguished careers in government before that, served, I think in every instance, uh, the entire length of the Obama administration, uh, and now are outside continuing to work to right the ship of democracy. And we've certainly got a lot of work to do on that front. At 7.30, we will have Laura Rosenberger. Uh, Laura is the uh, director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is working to identify and prevent Russian disinformation campaigns in elections, not only here in the United States, but overseas. And as you may know, earlier in the week, there were a couple of reports that came out of the Senate Intelligence Committee that talked about Russian interference. And so we'll be talking to Laura about those reports, but as importantly Laura was a foreign policy advisor for the Clinton campaign in 2016. She also worked at the National Security Council, State Department, and as folks may have seen, the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, announced his resignation yesterday. So we'll get into that with Laura, what it means, the implications for U.S. foreign policy. And I think with all of our guests today, we'll also be taking a look back on the year 2018. Happy to close the book on that one and look ahead to 2019. Uh, get some of their ideas of holiday uh, traditions that they enjoy, favorite Christmas movies, charities they're giving to. It's the end of the year, so we can do that. At the 8 o'clock hour, we've got Megan Uzel. Megan is the External Affairs Director for Democracy Forward, which is a group that is working to enhance government oversight through litigation. And so they've taken the Trump administration to court on a number of important Uh, initiatives, including their weird Mar-a-Lago council where these three rich guys at Mar-a-Lago apparently get to decide the fate of veterans in the United States. Uh, Megan served at the Department of Labor as a political appointee in the Obama administration. And Megan actually was my deputy when we were at the Department of Labor when when I was the deputy secretary. And then at the 8.30 half hour slot, we have Seema Nanda. Seema is the CEO of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, Prior to that, she was the chief of staff for Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, who uh, I served under as well. And she's a longtime career attorney, expert in immigration employment policy. And so she'll be talking to us about the work that the DNC has done over 2018. And then to look ahead to 2019 and 2020, we are amazingly almost at 2020 presidential season and the DNC has now started to codify some of the procedures for the nomination process and Seymour will come and talk about that. So we've got three friends, three great leaders in the resistance, a look back, a look ahead, and we're gonna have some fun today. But, you know, as I was saying, I started prepping for the show. I had kind of thoughts on what I wanted to do. I thought we weren't gonna have to talk about a shutdown. Apparently, we are now talking about a shutdown. We are Within 17 hours, if I'm doing my math correctly, of a shutdown, there does seem to be no deal in place. A lot of the frustration, frankly, has been with the president and his negotiating style. Folks may have remembered last week in the Oval Office when he met with uh, incoming, soon-to-be Speaker Pelosi, as well as the Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer. You remember he, you remember
2: when, that, when he met with them three years ago
3: last week? <laughs> the, the Chuck <laughs> and Nancy show has been kind of sporadically on and off. We were back on last week. He was adamant he was going to shut it down. It, he was he's happy to take the blame for it. And then in the in the uh, ensuing week— He sort of backed away from that. They were willing to come up with a short-term continuing resolution deal, and that looked like we were on track. The Senate passed it. People started getting on airplanes, going away. I even saw tweeting Brian Schatz on Twitter. This Uh, is amazing. Yeah, Senator Schatz uh, from Hawaii, fantastic progressive, had basically flown from Dulles to Honolulu and apparently gets there. It's an 11-hour flight. <laughs> it's an 11-hour flight. Yeah, 11-hour flight, and apparently now is coming right back again. And his the tweet was, I think, nothing more than IAD to HNL. I think that's the abbreviation for Honolulu to IAD. And that's with the life of a U.S. senator. So any of you who think U.S. senators are not working hard, they're <laughs> spending a lot of time on planes. And so... Overnight, uh, or last night, the House passed a—this uh, uh, kind of ping-pong process will go. The Senate passed the res- uh, continuing resolution. The House passed $5 billion for border funding. That will go to the Senate. That won't pass. And assuming nothing else happens, we shut down the government. So I, that would have been the biggest story. And then late in the afternoon yesterday, uh, Secretary James Mattis— one of the, the adults in the room, I sort of hate saying that because really the adult in the room should be the president of the United States, announced his resignation really with a, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say he burned bridges, but he sent a very strong message. And we've got a clip of Martha Raddatz of ABC reading part of that resignation letter. Mattis writes we cannot protect our interests without maintaining strong alliances and showing respect to those allies. Mattis adding we must be resolute and unambiguous in our approach to those countries whose strategic interests are increasingly in tension with ours. He specifically cites China and Russia telling Trump
2: Because you have the right to have a secretary of defense whose views are
3: better aligned with yours on these and other subjects, I believe it is right for me to step down from my position. Yeah, so this is pretty remarkable. Mattis is not a political person. And he there's been clear that there have been disagreements over the almost two years. And he's really kept those disagreements in check. Uh, we've had this pattern where Trump goes to these international convenings, whether it's the G7, whether it's NATO. He basically you know, lobs a grenade into these meetings and walks away, and it's left to Mattis to clean it up. He basically has to stomp around Europe and reassure the allies. But by and large, he's kept that under wraps. And so this is really kind of his big middle finger to Trump on the way out. And, and what is remarkable, and I really do hope people have a chance to read this, I mean, you see... Mattis, and again, whether you like the guy or don't like the guy, laying out his principles of uh, and really laying out the principles of a 70 year consensus we have in foreign policy uh, that's based on our alliances in Europe. Uh, It's based on a clear uh, eyed understanding of who our friends and foes are. And so, uh, and saying essentially, Trump, I disagree with you, and you have the chance to have your own. Secretary of Defense.
2: Well, you know, the the thing that's so terrifying about this to me is, uh, look, James Mattis is not a good guy, okay? Uh, And I think there's a difference between saying, you know, he's not necessarily a Trumper. Uh, He didn't carry out every single thing that Donald Trump wanted. Apparently, there are reports that say that... He stopped some of the things that Trump wanted to do. But look, James Mattis was responsible for killing a bunch of children on a school bus in Yemen. James Mattis was responsible for sending uh, a large group of troops to go to the border to terrify uh, migrants who were legally trying to come here to this country. And he went along with that. And that's, that's a problem. Uh, however, there is something to be said about the fact that James Mattis does sort of come from A more um, normal background for someone who would be president or someone who would be secretary of defense. You know what I mean? Uh, This is not some like wacky ideologue that is just a Trump acolyte that he slid in there. Um, so I'm not, my, my heart doesn't break for James Mattis leaving by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it is concerning because now this opens up the door for someone to be a secretary or secretary of defense who is just going to be a Trump acolyte. And as you see democratic gains in the house, and as you see, uh, Democrats really start sort of riding this momentum, Donald Trump is going to continue to insulate himself more and more and more. And that's what you see with uh, Matt Whitaker being named as the acting Attorney General, Bill Barr being nominated for Attorney General. These are guys who have said that they think that the Mueller investigation should be shut down and they will probably use their power to do it. Uh, You look at um, the new Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, who is a guy who has proven himself to be very, very loyal to Donald Trump in a bunch of different roles. Uh, He's he's taken on, hell, I think this is his third job (laughs) on his business card right now. Uh, And look, wherever we go for Secretary of Defense, uh, my gut tells me it's going to be someone who is very sympathetic to whatever Donald Trump wants to do build up the nuclear arsenal, threaten nuclear war against our uh, uh, our enemies, um, continue to play politics with our troops by sending them to the border for a made-up crisis, right. air quotes, crisis. <laughs> uh, you're going to see more and more of this as Democrats continue to take power, and Secretary of Defense is one of those jobs that you don't want someone like that in there.
3: Now, competence really does matter, and again, we could— stipulate that Mattis's policies haven't always been things we've agreed with. I think it's going to be fascinating when the the history books are written about this administration. Peter just laid out a couple of really great examples where Mattis has fallen short. but we're also going to look at the things that perhaps, you know, he may have stopped along the way. the The Washington Post this morning has an interesting article about the the number of disagreements uh, public and 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 not so public. At this point about uh, between Mattis and, uh, and Trump. Uh, the, the, one of the most telling one was earlier this month when Trump disregarded his recommendation on who should be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That apparently is a pick that the defense secretary heavily weighs in on. You'll recall that Trump loved to use, the, use his nickname Mad Dog Mattis, which apparently is one that Mattis didn't really like. But lately, Trump has been backing off. During a public interview, he called Mattis a Democrat, and he's lately been referring to the retired general as moderate dog. Uh, According to this article, uh, Mattis has uh, expressed skepticism about the prospects of nuclear disarmament negotiations with North Korea. He disliked the president's conciliatory posture towards Putin. He uh, disagreed with the decision to pull out of the nuclear deal with Iran, relocating the U.S. embassy to Israel uh, to Jerusalem. He apparently disagreed with the transgender uh, ban uh, of service members, uh, and especially the launching of the space force, which is kind of a odd thing. Has always been an odd thing, and Mattis thought that was really not that necessary. So, it, it, the but it, it's right. I mean, we, we are moving. We're moving away from. Competent people, and they may be competent people that we don't dis- we don't agree with. But uh, now, to I don't want to say these are incompetent people, but people who are putting loyalty over competence or loyalty over service to country. And and it's been interesting to see Republicans over the last twelve hours or so express consternation and throw their hands up. Marco Rubio has been on a little bit of a tear, uh, tweeting about this, saying, you know, now. Congress. Now, those of us in Congress who agree with the president on his policies need to step in and exercise oversight. And you want to say to Marco Rubio, where have you been for the last two years now? Why are you finally stepping up? Uh, and and it is, there is something to be said that it's not Jim Mattis's job to save the republic. It's ultimately the job of the two co-equal branches of government. And in some important respects, the federal judiciary has done its role but under republican control this congress essentially has been a wall and 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 it's basically enabled all of the worst instincts of this president and that's where we are right now you know to
2: to me uh what what i think of when i watch what's happening now and i've thought this way for for quite some time uh this is the analogy of the boiling a frog you know you know this analogy if you throw a frog into boiling water <laughs> he'll just jump right out But if you put him in a pot full of water and turn the heat on and let it slowly come up to a boil, the frog doesn't notice until, oops, it's too late. And I kind of feel like Republicans have uh, been sitting in this water that's slowly getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. And and we're now at a point where it sort of feels like we're pretty close to a full roiling boil. And I think it might be too late. Yeah. I think it might be too late.
3: One of the interesting things that I saw overnight, and I just want to read you a statement uh, from a U.S. senator about Mattis' resignation. Quote, I believe it's essential that the United States maintain and strengthen the post-war World War II alliances that have been carefully built by leaders in both parties. We must also maintain a clear-eyed understanding of our friends and foes and recognize that nations like Russia are among the latter I was sorry to learn that Secretary Mattis, who shares those clear principles, will soon depart the administration. I am particularly distressed that he is resigning due to sharp differences with the president on on these and other key aspects of America's global leadership. That statement was written and put out by none other than Mitch McConnell. And for for Mitch McConnell to put that out, uh, you have a sense that there is some genuine Anxiety and concern on the Republican side right now. And we'll dive more into this with Laura Rosenberger. But, and that's the funny thing like, you know, the shutdown in any other world would have been a big story. Uh, And and, and now we've got the Madison, uh, we've got, uh, well, we got the Dow dropping 470 points yesterday. Interesting statistic. Oh yeah,
2: also that. <laughs> uh,
3: and I think it's about to. So I think it, it's maybe heading up a little bit this morning when it opens. But a couple interesting stats, uh, which I tweeted out shamelessly. I'll I'll give uh, my Twitter address, ChrisLue44. Um, uh, the the Dow right now for the year is on pace for the worst performance. For the year since 2008 during the Great Recession. In the month of December, the Dow is set for its worst performance since 1931, the Great Depression. And since Donald Trump took office, the Dow is up 18%. Uh, the comparable figure during uh, uh, Barack Obama's time is 45%. So really, again, those of us who have done served in government, particularly those that have worked on economic issues know that the, that the stock market isn't really a reflection of where we are as a country. That being said, this president made it the benchmark of his accomplishment, and he's not doing very well on that front no, right you, now. You,
2: you worked in the Obama administration. How many times did Barack Obama come in front of the country and say, folks, we had a 1% increase. <laughs> uh, look at how good we're doing. Give me all the credit. Every, I get all the credit. Like, it
3: never happened. And we never did that because when the the stock market goes up and the stock market goes down. Yeah. And, and this is the funny thing about the stock market. I mean, go and look at... Donald Trump's tweets during 2017. Every time it went up, he tweeted about it. You never hear him tweeting about it when it goes down. And apparently now he's isn't just, that curious. How he's that just happens. blaming his Fed chairman. Yeah. But it, when you add all of these things together, it, it does make you wonder what the heck is going on. And there's a great we have a great clip from Congressman Tim Ryan on that.
1: The Secretary of Defense is gone. We're pulling out of Syria. What is going on? You are in charge of the House, Senate, and White House. Get a grip and learn how to govern the
3: country. And that's an important point. You are control of everything. And I went back and looked this morning and tweeted this out. Uh, we have, since 1980, and we should talk about government shutdowns, uh, there has, prior to 1980, there were times where uh, Congress and the White House did not agree on a budget, and there have been these budget lapses. Prior to 1980, the budget lapses never led to government shutdowns. Uh, but Jimmy Carter, when he was in his office, got an opinion from his attorney general that said, hey, if you don't have money, people can't work. And so since 1980, when we don't have a budget, which we apparently will not have in uh, if we don't get something done by midnight, the government shuts down. And there has never before this year, there has never been a government shutdown when the same party controlled both the White House and Congress. And we had one earlier this year that was unprecedented, that was historic, and we're about to have number two uh, at midnight tonight. And one of the crazy parts about this is the, the number of people that this will affect. Uh, 420,000 people will work without pay. That includes law enforcement and correctional officers, It includes forest service firefighters, uh, 400,000, 380,000 uh, to be more precise, will be furloughed, meaning they will not come to work. They will not get paid. Now, to be fair, we know that in previous years and previous shutdowns, uh, people will uh, eventually get paid. But I will tell you, having been in the Obama administration when we had a shutdown in 2013, when you have people who are living pay to paycheck to paycheck and you have an extended shutdown, missing one paycheck has long-term uh, implications. And so the, d- we should not take consolation of the fact that they will eventually get paid. So, uh, so among the people that will not get paid, uh, 86% of the Department of Commerce, 96% of NASA, we were just talking about the Soyuz uh, landing, uh, 80% of the National Park Service. So if you're planning this weekend to go to the Smithsonian National Park Service, uh, I, I'm even told like Lincoln Park or Stanton Park, one of the parks up here on Capitol Hill is a National Park Service thing. So they actually put like chains around it. Uh, the 30% of the department of transportation, uh, nine out of 15 federal departments and dozens of agencies will close. If you're trying to get a farm loan, a small business loan, you're out of luck. So uh, again, I I don't, we always figure out a way, uh, to, to work these things out, but we should never have gotten to this point on this shutdown. So
2: no, no, we shouldn't. But you know, you, you have to remember, uh, I think Tim Ryan said it best. They have total control, right. the Republicans. They've had it for two years. Uh, they could have gotten something done. And, you know, when, when I think about this whole fight over the wall and how many twists and turns this has taken over the years that we've been talking about building the wall, uh, and now you see – do you see this GoFundMe? Yeah. They started the GoFundMe <laughs> for the wall. And so, like, I can only imagine all these kids are going to be getting uh, cards from their grandparents this year saying, Hey, uh, your Christmas gift this year, we made a donation in your name to the wall. We're building the wall. But, you know, as Tim Ryan was saying, they had the power. They could have gotten something done on this. And you have to wonder... Do they even want anything to happen? Do they? Is this something that they even? Do they want the government to function? And the more you read and and learn about how Donald Trump and his acolytes govern, running a, an efficient government is not something they have any interest <laughs> in at <laughs> all, right? And I don't think that it's even a coordinated no. Uh, no. by design. I think it's just that they're fine to just sort of wing it.
3: Uh, You know, I'm glad you mentioned the GoFundMe campaign, and and this is the last show of the year, and we are in the holiday season, which is a time for giving, a time for sharing. (laughs) I I do want to encourage everyone listening. I'm going to be – I didn't give my guests a heads up on this, but hopefully they're listening. And, you know, if people want to plug their favorite charity, a favorite cause, uh, I want people to do that because I think given – Uh, given the darkness and ugliness that we often have in the world now is the time to think about people less fortunate than us and I will I will stipulate that people less fortunate than us uh, are not the GoFundMe people for the wall okay yes thank you (laughs) so if you're going to tell me that you're going to to pay for that that's your charity for the holiday season Uh, I might respectfully suggest (laughs) you come up with a better one uh, or I simply might ask our guests that you know something they're thankful for this year you know outside of the world of politics Peter anything you want to you want to Tell our listeners about, our favorite cause, something you're thankful for this year?
2: You know what? uh, If anybody's thinking about how to support a great cause, check out the Bill Press Show Patreon page, because (laughs) we put a lot of great content up there every day. Bill puts up his parting shot. It only costs like $5 a month. Just join the Patreon page.
3: There you go. Relentlessly on message. I'm a company man, Chris. You you are a company man. Well, look, we're going to get to our guests. Uh, We've got Laura Rosenberger coming up in the next half hour. Stay tuned. Follow us on
2: Twitter at BP Show.
3: This is the Bill Press Show. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on a weird Friday. I mean, our guest Laura Rosenberg is wearing a sweater, and it's, like, hot out there right now. So... (laughs)
4: <laughs> I put my hat on, like, walking the five blocks over from my place, and I was like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. It, it,
3: it's very, very
2: odd. So we're I came outside in a coat, and then I was like, eh, I don't need this coat. I know, you're, you're still rocking the hat, Peter, over there. Okay. Well, this is because I have male pattern baldness.
3: There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, you, wait, wait, you're not doing the Stephen Miller thing, where we're drawing it on?
2: Well, <laughs> for Christmas, my, I'm hoping one of my stocking stuffers is spray-on hair. <laughs> uh, but until that happens, I'm just going with a wool hat.
3: We are joined by my good friend, Laura Rose. Laura is the director of Alliance for Securing Democracy. You can follow the organization on Twitter at Secure Democracy. You can follow Laura at Rosenberger LM. Prior to this position, Laura was with me in the Obama administration. She uh, was, well, I should say, before, in the interim, she was um, the foreign policy advisor for uh, the Hillary for America campaign. She was the chief of staff to the deputy secretary of state. Uh, Also was at the National Security Council. She's an expert on Asia and like 101 other things. (laughs) So I invited Laura in to talk about these new Senate Intel Committee reports about Russia uh, interference, which is what her group focuses on in terms of disinformation campaigns and democracies. But since I invited Laura in, in that interim, we've had these like.
0: surprise.
4: I
3: know this is like the crazy world. uh, We've been talking about in the last half hour, how, how bad is this resignation of Mattis?
4: So, it's bad on a couple of different levels and I was talking with some friends last night who were like, we we're looking at your timeline to figure out just how bad it is and it looks really bad and I'm like, well, there's a scale of bad and this is towards the bad end of bad, but like it could get worse on the bad end of yeah. bad, right? Um, and part of that is sort of who's going to come after him. Um, a lot of people have looked at, you know, the potential for a Mattis resignation as a little bit of a Rubicon, right? Um, and I think we all feel like we may be at that moment we can't quite put our finger on what it exactly means. To me, you mean
3: you mean the Rubicon where Senate Republicans finally stand up?
4: Possibly. Yes. Yes. Or that it would take you know what that what would take us to that point for Mattis to actually resign would be so significant that we were like really screwed. Right. Right. So, you know, we saw obviously the Syria decision two days ago. Right. um, When the Mattis. You know, resignation first came public yesterday. Most people assumed it was Syria and then the Afghanistan. She right. dropped immediately we, after. We need to talk
3: about that one as well. Yeah. Um,
4: so and it's important, by the way, I think that we think about those two different um, decisions separately because they have very different um, different histories and very different impacts on, on U.S. national security interests. But, you know, to me, um, the fact that Mattis got to this point after all these other moments, right, whether it was you know we forget about this, but like early on, you know, the president wanting to. Um, sign an executive order that would have allowed him to, you know, conduct torture again, right? <laughs> um, you know, various decisions surrounding detention of prisoners um, of war, you know, various decisions about sending troops to the southern border, right, that lo- many people believe Mattis probably did not agree with, but that it got to this point that he feels he can no longer, as he made clear in his letter, you know, re- represent a president whose um, views are so different from his own. That, for me, is is extremely disturbing um, and and for me, makes me really wonder what else is to come. And of course, it comes in the context of what is clearly a president who is increasingly unhinged, right? right. I mean, he's been unhinged. <laughs> There's been no hinge there. But um, he is less and less constrained by anything around him, apparently. Um, I think you know, where we see the Mueller investigation is not in a direction that is good for the president. And he feels like a cornered animal, yeah. and he's he's lashing out. And you know, the animals that are wounded and back in a corner are usually the most dangerous. And so for me, it's that combination of factors of you know how we've gotten to this Mattis resignation, and then the the big question marks about what's next um, that makes me really really worried.
3: Last time you and I were both in the studio together was right after Helsinki. Oh God! And yeah. I know you. Were, I remember you were in Helsinki, <laughs> and and I post Helsinki. Mattis basically was like jetting around Europe, trying to reassure Al, which I think is kind of like a common thing. Any kind of summit, he has to go do the cleanup on aisle whatever aisle Europe, he has to do the cleanup. Uh, and, and it's that was the thing that was striking I mean, you know, look, we we can, we can have a rational strategy in Syria, we can have a conversation about the war in Iraq and whether we have an exit strategy. I was sort of struck when I read the Mattis resignation letter sort of the broader way it was framed mm-hmm. in terms of his 40-year commitment to our alliances, mm-hmm. in particular in Europe, his clear-eyed view of who China and Russia mm-hmm. were, and this very clear disagreement with the president about a worldview. And so, you know, again, I, look, I mean, I think we, I think Sarah Sanders said yesterday, I mean, he's the president of the United States. He can pick whoever you want to pick. And that, at some level, is that's correct. And at some level, it's sort of terrifying when you're making decisions as he's making in Syria that apparently were done without even consulting or without the consent of the, the US military and without consulting with our allies as well.
4: Yeah, and I'm also told um, by a, a, a colleague who's still in the administration um, and in a position to know that um, the Afghanistan decision, which, you know, to remind folks, Afghanistan is a NATO mission. Right. It's actually a NATO mission. It's, it is it um, is still a result of the only time that NATO has ever invoked Article 5, right. after the 9-11 attack. And our allies play a really critical role in the ISAF mission, the International Security Assistance Force, which is NATO's mission in Afghanistan. And, and I am and told. And we should
3: remind people this uh, because Donald Trump loves saying that we are basically supporting NATO and NATO is not supporting us. This mission is is in an effort to protect against an attack that happened against the United States. Right. So, yeah. Exactly.
4: Exactly. No, this was um, the. Um, the mission essentially to quash al-Qaeda. Right. Right. Um, to dr- you know, drive out the Taliban because they were unwilling to deal with right. al-Qaeda on their own. Um, and then to keep al-Qaeda from becoming resurgent um, right. in Afghanistan. And, you know, I am told that this decision was made without consultation with NATO. Right. Which is stunning. I mean, you and I were both um, at the White House in the Obama administration during uh, a number of um, yeah. Afghan review processes, which were always a little bit of a of a tortured thing in part though because it's
3: it's <laughs> a bad use. that's a bad
4: I'm sorry. In they this... were they were in extremely <laughs> bureaucratically complicated, but very, very um, well thought through. <laughs> decision-making processes well, um, well but but the, but the reason that they were that is because it's so complicated right it's so complicated this is not an area where you can make an easy answer if no. there were easy answers we would have made right. them a long time ago right and so the fact that this decision would just be made willy-nilly without a without consultation with our allies whose national security interests are going to be very directly impacted by this and you know this could very well combined with everything else affect their willingness to stand with the United States.
3: And this is an important point, and I think, um, leaving aside policy disagreements, leaving aside you know what our long-term strategy is in these regions are, it's, it's trust in the United States, it's mm-hmm. our reputation as a dependable ally, mm-hmm. it's what our role in the world is, whether we're going to essentially cede Syria to the Russians, as we are apparently ceding most of Africa to the Chinese at this point. Uh, it, it 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 raises larger questions, particularly among our European allies. Can they trust the United? Is is the United States a trustworthy partner? Well, and this is
4: where the Mattis decision also has sort of larger than life implications. Because talking to you know European officials, I mean, I was just earlier this week with a a European foreign minister, um, and and the mantra for them is always well, but there's Mattis, you know, and Mattis always is the one who they have seen as sort of the rock. Um, and the source of stability and the one that can assure them that um, he's going to do everything possible to to make sure that things continue to go in the right direction. And with him gone, you know, who do our allies cling to for that sort of source of stability?
3: And according to some of the reporting overnight, and, and you can correct me, I don't know if it's Syria or it's Afghanistan, where apparently the people who are now pushing back against the president are Pompeo and Bolton as well. And when like John Bolton becomes like the voice of reason in your White House, that does become sort of interesting and troubling as well.
4: Yeah, I actually hadn't seen that reporting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that the dynamics at play here are, are quite interesting. My understanding is that Pompeo was surprised by the Syria decision earlier this week. Um, pretty much everybody was surprised, is, is my understanding. Um, The Bolton dynamics in the White House and how this uh, administration's sort of um, I don't even want to call it interagency dynamics because I don't believe that there is any such process or or sort of deliberative body in a real way.
3: It does make you wonder what they use the sit room for these days, actually, because it's not doing interagency meetings.
4: Yeah. Well, (laughs) of course, you know, there was the whole, um, uh, you know, uh, oh my gosh! Why am I blanking on her name? The the reality oh, TV right. star. Oh uh, right, Omarosa. Omarosa. Uh, Omarosa. She got <laughs> fired, right? And recorded it in the zip room. So they apparently, you know, John that, Kelly uh, well, uses it for the uh, tough conversations. I, well, that would be
3: that would <laughs> that it would be frequently used if that's where we're doing our personal I guess it room. would
4: be. I mean, very nice, well equipped conference right, room with nice. you know yeah. no natural sunlight and yeah, yeah, yeah we all love those voices. So
3: you've spent a lot of time in your career thinking about Asia, China, Korea, places like that. So let's let's just take a step back. What does this do as Xi Jinping is negotiating (laughs) with Trump on a trade war? What does it do when uh, Kim Jong-un is, I I would not say negotiating a a denuclearization, they're sort of saying dancing around one. Uh, As they are approaching the Trump administration, uh, how does their posture affected by all this?
4: Well, the two people who are loving this chaos the most um are vladimir putin and xi jinping um you know uh i mean at the end of the day i actually think it's a long complicated answer you know xi jinping and china do want stability in the international system they're not they're not super comfortable with a lot of upheaval but the fact that the u.s is a pulling back from the world right b um so internally focused with our own problems that we're unable to exert global leadership Um, and three, that our allies are very unsure of where we are going to be for them and therefore kind of hedging their bets in a number of cases. Um, Those are all things that make Xi Jinping quite happy. And when we're not present in the international institutions that do need reform and updating, but when we're not the ones driving that, it's China that is. And that is decidedly not in our interest. And if you're Kim Jong-un, you know, I mean, basically, uh, Kim Jong-un has just decided and and realized um, what many of us knew would happen when we started with a summit um, with, you know, without any other process around it, which is that the only person that Kim Jong-un needs to deal with is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is one that he can take for a complete and total ride and so
3: but Laura they wrote beautiful letters to each other they, they fell in letters
4: love. very <laughs> large letters presented in very large <laughs> envelopes I mean these things size matters apparently um, yeah I mean it's it's a little bit crazy town um, and you know my deep concern is that at the moment we have a situation on the Korean Peninsula Um, where, in fact, the South Koreans are driving full force ahead with an inter-Korean dialogue process. Um, The U.S. doesn't really seem to have a strategy or policy at all. And there's actually a lot of um, potential for a rift to occur between the U.S. and South Korea um, if the South Koreans move faster on their dialogue process than where the U.S. believes we should be. And that requires real careful skillful, really hands-on diplomacy to ensure that there is no space between the US and our South Korean ally. The only two countries that benefit from space between the US and South Korea are North Korea right. and China. right. And uh, and I don't really see a meaningful process. I mean, look, I, I do want to give credit where credit is due to the people who are in the trenches and trying to do the right things here. Steve Biegun, who's the US special representative, and um, Uh, was in South Korea this week, uh, clearly was trying to to do some management and work with our South Korean allies to make sure that there is no space there. But, you know, the North Koreans are super smart and they dropped this big, big statement in the middle of his visit, essentially saying, well, what you guys say is denuclearization <laughs> is not what we think of denuclearization. And oh, by the way, remember that lovely dinky little statement that yeah. we negotiated with your president? Well, he's been out there selling a bill of goods and what he says was in there is not what was in there. And by the way, they're right. Right. Like that's the crazy thing is like when it comes to what was in there, what the North Koreans are actually saying is is the is the truer version of reality, which is also terrifying.
3: Well, and it's so important to go back and read. Trump's tweets post-Singapore. Essentially, the, the mission ac- accomplished mm-hmm. declaration. Mm-hmm. The same one, his weird statement on Syria that we've defeated ISIS so we're not right. leaving it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, if you're just joining us, we are with Laura Rosenberger, who is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. We could do foreign policy all day, but I, I do want to touch on something else. So, The Alliance for Securing Democracy really is working to expose and prevent uh, the Russian disinformation campaigns, which they obviously affected the United States and the 2016 election, and I know uh, I know your efforts are broader than just the United States and expand to other countries. So earlier this week, and you might want to explain this a little bit more to the listeners, uh, there were two reports that were commissioned by the Senate Intelligence Committee that looked at, again, the use of the social media that came out. I was sort of surprised by them. Uh, I, was, I guess I was surprised by the extent of what they found. I'm curious. Why don't you talk about what they found and how surprised you were by them?
4: Sure. So just, as you said, to kind of step back and remind what these were is, um, in the two plus years since the 2016 election you know, we've gone from the social media companies um, denying that there that any um, of this kind of activity had occurred um, to admitting that this kind of activity occurred, but refusing to actually give details um, to finally providing um, a good bit of information to various congressional committees when compelled to do so by them. Um, and they gave the most information. Um, material over to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, most of that was not made public. Some of the companies have since made parts of that data public. But the long and short is that the Senate Intelligence Committee has a huge amount of data from social media companies about um, you know, Russian social media uh, manipulation that has not been analyzed publicly before um, or publicly exposed in, in detail before. And so they commissioned these, um, a couple of different uh, research groups, to write these reports for them using that data. And what they found was a few things. One, I want to note that the data that the Senate Intelligence Committee has um, goes through about mid-2017. Mm-hmm. And, and what we saw, what the reports document, which is what many of us who've been watching this um, know, is that the activity didn't stop after Election Day 2016. In fact, it continued to increase, particularly um, on, the, on Instagram. Yeah. Um, it, it actually grew. Um, So that's one, um, is that this is an ongoing effort. And by the way, it didn't stop in mid 2017. That's just when the data um, sort of ran through. But we know that this has continued. um, Number one. Number two, the reports show that this was occurring across all social media platforms. Um, Again, uh, many of us who've been watching this have known this. Um, A few of the other platforms have you know, put out public statements in the past. For instance, Tumblr um, we know was actually particularly used to target African-Americans. Reddit uh, had made public about 900 posts that it found that originated from the Internet Research Agency. But the bottom line is, again, this is about manipulation of the entire information ecosystem, right? Um, Number three uh, was the finding that, um, you know, most of the, um, the content was clearly aimed at, in one way or another, Helping Donald Trump and/or hurting Hillary Clinton, yeah. and I think it's really important though when people hear that to understand that that doesn't mean the posts were about Donald right. Trump or about Hillary Clinton. In it. some of them were, but a lot of them was about were about issues, um, or a lot of them were about you know talking about things like you know Hillary Clinton um, and linking you know all the conversation we heard about Hillary Clinton and um, you know the. Uh, Bill Clinton's administration's approach to criminal justice and how that was racist and reminding of comments that Hillary Clinton had made at the time. Um, You know, all of which are worthy of discussion, but were being artificially amplified by non-Americans in order to influence our debate and really, you know, suppress African-American support for her. Um, There were efforts to drive up support for Jill Stein. There were efforts to mislead African-Americans in particular about how to vote, where to vote, when to vote, all these things. So it wasn't just I mean, the large amount of the content wasn't about you know, trying to convince somebody who's a Democrat to vote for Trump. Right. That's not really what this was about. This was about sort of trying to find the existing, you know, vulnerabilities and weaknesses in our political debate, and in our discourse and racism being a big one and um, and really go after that. And I do think it's important. I, I do want to note a really important op ed. This week um, from Sherilyn Ifill, mm-hmm. um, which really talked about racism as a national security issue. And I just want to say as a national security professional, I, I completely right. endorse what she had to say there. I, I, I think that it's, you know, the fact and th- this isn't new, right? The Russians did this during the Cold War. Absolutely. Um, and this remains a serious vulnerability for us and one that we have got to
3: address. It, I was struck when I read the reporting on uh, these analyses, a couple of things, um, as you said. It, this was much more than Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. In, in many ways, they may have exploited Instagram far mm-hmm. more worse. Um, it, it, we don't really know what... I, we know this has continued into 2017 because we know some of this has targeted Mueller. We don't know about the midterms, not because we think they've stopped. We just... The data doesn't go to that point. And I think the other thing I was struck by is the sophistication of this. The The Times article about this talks about one of the accounts that I think had the... Like, one of the highest number of uh, traffic, an Instagram account started posting images from The Muppet Show, mm-hmm. then switched to The Simpsons, mm-hmm. and then became Jesus-focused. So what they basically did was kind of create this audience and then exactly. shift it to what they wanted. Exactly. I was also struck by some of the ones that particularly targeted uh, that targeted African-Americans uh, were, were aimed at African-American users who had shown interest in the Black Panther Party, Malcolm X, Black Lives Matter. So there was a level of sophistication in how you build an audience.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's also something that gets lost now in um, some of the monitoring that my group and others do on this kind of activity is we see these networks jump on um, a lot of different conversations, not necessarily because they have an interest in that issue, um, or because they're trying to drive a particular viewpoint on it, but often because it's a trending topic, often because they're trying to insinuate themselves to different audiences. That's absolutely the the case. Two other quick points I would make. One, I think that, again, what this shows, and particularly the use of Instagram, where it, a lot of it's memes, right, and photographs, is that when we think about, you know, I think a lot of the early conversation around this used uh, the the term I hate to even say it, but the the term fake news, not in the Trumpian right. version of it, but in the yeah. in the you know me, true meaning of deliberately you know misleading <clears throat> and false content, right? Right. Um, the true sort of definition of Disinformation, Um, but what we see here is actually most of this is not a question of false or not. This isn't fact checking or not. This is about you know manipulating people's emotions more than it is about manipulating people's sense of of um, truth or not. Now there is absolutely an effort to kind of denigrate the the very idea of truth. It's that's sort of a broader underpinning of the Russian efforts. The the last point I would make is on the midterms. Um, We don't know from these reports because the data didn't go that far, but we do know with quite certainty that there were attempts on the midterms. In fact... Outgoing Secretary Mattis himself um, said it on the record um, at a conference a couple of weeks ago that the Russians had made an attempt in the midterms. Um, the day before uh, the midterm elections, Facebook took down yeah, um, a network of a account point. they had found online. And in <clears throat> fact, in an in FBI indictment of a bookkeeper from the Internet Research Agency, which is the group within Russia that has been driving most of this content in that um, in that charging document um, from October, Uh, The Department of Justice says that um, the efforts that were being made by the Internet Research Agency included efforts aimed at the midterms. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I think one of your points, and I want to move on, I think one of your points is important, which is when we think about internal divisions within this country, racism, um, those are national security issues. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. these racial tensions have always existed in our country, but the Russians have gotten very, very good at exploiting this for their gains. Uh, we are here with Laura Rosenberger from uh, Alliance for Securing Democracy. What we're asking the guests, we've got about two minutes left. We are in the time of sharing and giving, and we were laughing earlier about this GoFundMe campaign to help raise money for the wall, which we would argue <laughs> will stipulate is not the best use of, of, of giving this holiday season. Uh, I'm going to ask my guests if, if you want to plug your organization, which you can shamelessly do, or a favorite cause or something that you're helping to support this holiday season. We've got two minutes
4: so i will of course shamelessly plug um <laughs> my group the alliance i would expect for nothing security. less actually. yeah i mean I you know it. yeah thank you thank you i mean you know leadership is uh is something i, I strive to to be good yeah, at go. so um you know so alliance for securing democracy um is as chris mentioned um the, the twitter handle is uh secure democracy you can find us online it's uh you know securingdemocracy.org um and uh we we really um, appreciate all of the support we get from um, donations, small and, and large, um, to support the work that we do uh, to defend democracies against authoritarian efforts to um, to undermine them. Yeah. So so that's one. Um, two is I um, a, a, a will I will plug a group of organizations which are all working really at what Chris was Chris and I were just talking about, which is to address um, hate the rise of hate groups um, and, and sort of the spewing of hate within our country, organized hate. Um, and, and so for me, um, you know, that includes the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, the Anti-Defamation League, and then um, one that I have added to this list more recently um, I am Chris and I were talking before um, I'm from Pittsburgh and the, the tree of life shooting was one that deeply affected me. And so the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society is one that is a Jewish refugee organization um, that apparently is partly what sparked the the shooter there to, to take the action he did. So,
3: Well, that's it's a, it's a great way to end this segment on Laura Rosenberger. Thank you for being uh, as smart as you always are and for coming in and on a perfect day. Please follow Laura on uh, Twitter at Rosenberger L.M., And we will be back uh, in a couple of minutes with Megan Newzell. This
1: is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support.
2: Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Show.
3: Welcome back. This is Chris Liu, guest hosting for Bill on a weird, humid, warm Friday morning in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44. Uh, and if Please tweet at me because I actually do respond to my tweets. I, I love, uh, and I'm not a meme person, so people send me memes and I just kind of catalog them and I'll do something with them, but I'm not really sure what to do with them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'm guest hosting today. This is this is kind of cool. This is the last live show uh, of the year. Uh, we're asking our guests um, shamelessly. These are all friends of mine, uh, and we're going to be asking them, you know, in, in this time of giving and sharing, if there's something that they want to plug. Um, everyone has been shamelessly plugging their own organization, which is totally fine, particularly if you're a 501c3. You'll feel free to take the tax deduction. We will stipulate that if you want to give, giving to the GoFundMe for the wall is a bad (laughs) use of money. You're
2: immediately disqualified. It's a very,
3: very bad use of money. That's a very, very bad use of money. Um, But look, uh, before we get to our next guest, Megan Uzel, we have some headlines. This
2: is the Full Court Press. You
3: got it. Just a couple of other stories making news. Chris, you know what today is. It's December 21st. Uh, oh, it's the longest day of the year. Uh, no, the, shortest, it's day the, the year. shortest day of the year. the yeah,
2: shortest day of the year. Yes, go. indeed. Today is the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. For the last six months, the nights have grown shorter. and The nights, or excuse me, the days have grown shorter. The nights have grown longer. That is about to reverse itself. Uh, today is the shortest day of 2018. Now, not only that, tomorrow will be a full moon, which is known as the cold moon. And not only that... There is a meteor shower that we might even be able to see this weekend. It depends on where you are in the country. Check it out online because there there are different little maps that show you where uh, you might be able to see it uh, better. Uh, But
3: pretty crazy time for weather, right? Uh, And and in Washington, D.C. right now, and and Megan is a a longtime resident, I think like last week we hit like the wettest year, the wettest year in history. Yeah, we did. And it just keeps raining. Yeah. it's still raining.
2: Yeah, we're, I mean, this is gonna—we're gonna set a, a record that's gonna stand until let's see, probably March of next year I when was it rains more than ever. Uh, you know, I know. Um. <laughs> Have you been following, by the way, this story at Gatwick?
3: Uh, yes, I actually, I weirdly actually know the story as okay. well. Okay,
2: this is a crazy <laughs> story because it was about 36 chaotic hours. A hundred different flights had to be canceled because there were drones yes. that were flying near Gatwick. I talked about this story a little bit yesterday, but uh, here, here's basically where they're back up and running, is what I'm trying to say. They're back up and running. More than 126,000 passengers had their flights canceled on them because there were drones flying near Gatwick Airport. So everything is back to normal. Everything is fine. It has reopened, uh, and planes are now arriving and departing at Gatwick. But it was a weird 36 hours because even yesterday, after I did the story yesterday morning, this continued to be a problem for them.
3: So I weirdly know this story because my wife used to be the uh, general counsel at the Department of Transportation. Oh. And one of the things they did was to put in rules for registering of drones. Yes, that's right. And so for this holiday season, and Megan's got two boys, and if you want to give your kid a drone, you also have to register the drone. So that when you start flying them over uh, Reagan National Airport, they know it's Megan Uzel's drone. That's the problem.
0: <laughs> Santa is not allowed to S- bring S- electronics S- to our
2: house.
3: Yeah. It, no drone. Peter, you have a son, right? I have two boys. And they uh, have we had a drone phase. Yeah,
2: okay. The drone phase is, thankfully, over. Uh, But we we had some of the drones. This was, I guess, about two years ago. We had a drone Christmas.
3: So I I actually... I I know this because I knew someone that had a drone. And I think you could buy, like, a cheap drone. But they don't go very far or very high. So if you're going to have a lot of drones... Over an airport, that's a pretty decent drone.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are drones now that can get high enough up to cause a real disturbance. And they don't cost as much as they used to. Like three or four years ago, what well, these drones that could get to that height would cost, you know, several hundred dollars. But for like a hundred bucks, you can get a drone that could cause a, a, a real disruption.
3: And I don't recommend that. But if you do no, I that, don't either. <laughs> uh, uh, please register. it. Uh, we have a uh, mega New Zealand studio. We will be back. In a minute. This is the Bill Press Show. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is Chris Lou, guest hosting for Bill on a Friday morning. Uh, please follow me on Twitter at Chris Lou44. You can follow the show at BP Show. Uh, and as we've talked about in the last uh, hour, um, while this is the last live show of the year, there's some wonderful pre recorded shows for next week. And I'm told there's a drinking show. There's
2: a drinking show. Uh, we brought in one of the biggest brains on beer uh, that's a friend of the show, Greg Angert, that runs a great uh, brewery here called Blue Jacket uh he brought us some holiday beers. So if you have any questions about let's say your father-in-law <laughs> is coming to town and you want to you want to get him a nice beer, he's got a lot of details about like good winter beers and what differentiates a good winter beer from a good summer beer and of course because
3: you know we're we're very thorough in our research. Right. We had to try them. Well, there you go. I, I yeah. would expect nothing less. Yeah. So Well, we are in, in studio right now with Megan Yuzell, one of my favorite people and and she's now Only one of my favorite people because she's really smart, but she also was my deputy when I was at the Department of Labor. Uh, She uh, is currently the External Affairs Director for Democracy Forward. She previously worked at the Department of Labor uh, and is a House veteran as well. Uh, Megan, welcome. You can follow uh, Democracy Forward at DemocracyFWD. We need a better Twitter handle for you guys. And then uh, (laughs) Megan, you can follow it. U Z I K S D C. Um, thank you for I being. And throw
0: here. back to my Kansas roots.
3: Well, I know. So Megan is from Kansas, and so she actually has to do uh, Uzel. I guess the Uzi is from Uzel. The Ks is from Kansas. The Dc is. You've yeah, got it. There you go. Um, before we get to uh, Democracy Forward, uh, you're a veteran of the Hill. Um, you're a veteran of federal government. We're about to shut down. Uh, you were in the shutdown in 2013 right when the Department of Labor yep uh, what was that like
0: yeah it was a, it was a very unsettling tough time. you spent as a federal employee a lot of time preparing for a shutdown. you had uncomfortable staff meetings where certain people had to hand in their IDs their blackberries, their badges you knew no work was going to get done you wanted to do your work civil servants are committed to getting their jobs done and to being able to serve the public and to know that they're going to be sent home because, Responsible adults can't make the decisions they need to make um, is very unsettling. And you've got a range of people who are committed to the security and to the support for families across the country, and yeah. they're not going to be able to do their jobs.
3: No. And, and you and I know this because we, we it, it felt like every six months, every year, we were planning for another shutdown. And the amount of wasted time mm-hmm. that happens in agencies all around the country, offices all around the country, is incredible. Just planning for something that may or may not happen.
0: It's an incredibly inefficient waste of time.
3: Um, I do have to just play one clip because um, um, the incoming speaker has this wonderful clip about, uh, uh, about the president golfing uh, during a shutdown. Maybe he thinks if government shut down, he can golf more comfortably. That's not how it works. Government must work. Even if you're golfing for two weeks. God, I love that woman. I just, I'm, I'm like, I cannot wait till she gets sworn in as speaker. It's also a great reminder of of like the little mini outrages that we had over <laughs> Barack Obama golfing. Well, no, this is the crazy. On the weekend. This, and, and this is the crazy thing. It, when, we're not going to say if, when when Trump golfs uh, over the weekend uh, at Mar-a-Lago, um, his Secret Service has to keep defending him, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not going to get paid. I mean, they'll eventually get paid, but they, but they don't get paid. Paychecks along the process. Anyway, look, um, so Democracy Forward was founded uh, last year to expose corruption in the executive branch, and uh, you fight that through legal action. I, it, give a perspective to the listeners who may not understand uh, why this organization was funded and some of your major accomplishments over the last two years.
0: Sure. You know, Chris, I think, as, as you know, just because the the balance of power shifts doesn't mean the law changes. And just because someone doesn't like the policy doesn't mean that they get to undo policy or change policy by ignoring the law. So I work with a great team of people um, who are all extremely experienced. And we're challenging the unlawful actions the administration has taken in court.
3: And I want to get to some of those. uh, uh, These three rich guys at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago who apparently, from what I could tell, uh, don't really have experience in government. I don't even know if they are veterans. They aren't. They aren't veterans. And they apparently get to have the say over the personnel and policy of one of the largest federal agencies, one of the most important constituents. Uh, wh- <laughs> I, I, it's almost like the setup to a Saturday Night Live skit or something. So so what are you all doing to stop that?
0: Sure, so the commitment to our nation's veterans has to be greater than loyalty to the president's golf buddies. Um, I think the, there's a federal law called the Federal Advisory Committee Act, and that was, um, it became statute a long time ago, and it requires transparency. If you're engaging with people who have significant private interests, then then it needs to be transparent, specifically to avoid a situation where people are pushing their own personal interests, and that's what we're seeing in Mar-a-Lago. So this this troika, this Mar-a-Lago unlawful council, um, is creating or or you know did have a hand in creating federal policy for the for the Veterans Affairs Department. And we're trying to seek in court greater transparency about the level and the extent of their influence.
3: And I remember when uh, David Shulkin was the secretary, I think he had to go down and like you had to pay homage to these people. And I think when Wilkie came in, they had to his it's first like, week in office. You have to go kiss the ring of these Mar-a-Lago members before you can become the secretary of Veterans Affairs. I mean, it's
0: kind of nutty and illegal
3: and, and okay well it's important nutty and illegal let's, <laughs> let's not forget the illegal part of this uh, entire thing and and you you mentioned the private interest and and that's worth fleshing out one of these guys has a potential business interest in something they're pushing on VA
0: personal interests they um, the, the the three individuals is the the CEO of Marvel Entertainment um,
2: a concierge. Again,
3: love love Marvel <laughs> movies. I am. Um, I, I saw the trailer for what's the next one coming out? Peter, uh, Captain
2: Marvel. There's there's Captain Marvel. That's the next one. Then there's the second part of Infinity Infinity War, War. And Avengers Endgame. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Love the movies. I have
3: a we
0: are no big reason. fans of Super love, yeah, so. love 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 yep. the
3: movies. Don't really think the guy should be like running the VA.
0: No, they they are not wearing capes for veterans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, that's right. If we had Captain Marvel in there, that actually might help our veterans more. So there you go.
0: Um, so sure, there uh, there is a you know a, a meeting with Tim Cook, and the the son of one of these three gentlemen was invited to to join the meeting and is now or at that time was named a project manager. So I think in, in this particular situation, the administration has um, made a commitment to shield this illegal troika from public scrutiny, and you know we're challenging it in court.
3: You know. Uh- News, ha- and it's, it's fantastic you're doing that. Uh, again, I every, and I could even say every day, like 10 times a day, I, I sort of scratched my head and said, if we tried to do this in the Obama administration, we would have gotten killed. Um, and so this is one of the, <laughs> one of the more incredible ones. Um, y- you know, it, it has been such a busy week of news. Let's just say it's been a busy 24 hours of news. I think, I think we forgot to sort of talk about this morning, like the departure of another cabinet member. Ryan Zinke is on his way out the door. Uh, I, according to the post yesterday, I think during his time in office he racked up 15 investigations. Five are still pending. Uh, he had this weird practice of flying the flag up and down uh, the the building. He rode it on a horse. He's got all these goofy things. Uh, I know your group has been actively looking at Zinke as well. Uh, talk about some of those initiatives.
0: Sure. I think one of the um, you know one of the the disturbing trends that we've seen across the administration is similar to Mar-a-Lago, un, you know, unlawful counsel. Um, we've seen that across the board. And so uh, Secretary Zinke also has several of these unlawful advisory councils. And one of them is called the Royalty Policy Committee, which by itself doesn't sound terrible. But when you stack the council with representatives from <laughs> Chevron, the and people Shell, that pay the royalties, and, Conoco, <laughs> um, and you don't put anyone on the council that represents Western landowners or ranchers or Western conservationists, then what you end up with Um, is, again, an unlawful counsel that's not fairly balanced. And that's another one we're challenging court. In that particular situation, they've pushed all of the policymaking into the subcommittees and are shielding the subcommittees from any transparency at all.
3: And these are people who have a financial interest in the policies that come out of the department? Yes. And and what's weird about it, and maybe it's worth taking a step back. I mean, I think when we think about the federal advisory FACA, Federal Advisory Committees Act, Um, it seems kind of wonky, and I think people don't really understand why sunshine laws exist.
0: Sure. Without sunshine laws, um, how are our communities and our organizations supposed to know what the government is doing? I don't think anyone blames the government for wanting to be able to rely on outside input. In fact, that's a good practice. But when reliance on outside input means that you're prioritizing you know, the, the the wealth and interests of key individuals over the rest of the community or the other expertise, then you run into a situation where um, publicly, public policy is not necessarily being made in the best interest of the public.
3: Yeah, you know, I think people forget. I mean, you know, when you go back and you think about the image of smoke-filled rooms where power brokers are making decisions, I mean, that's what FACA, the Federal Advisory mm-hmm. Committee Act, is supposed to stop. And as you pointly or rightly point out, it is good for government to get input from all sides, mm-hmm. both people who support your policies and oppose your policies. That's certainly what we did when we were government. We met with the unions and we met with the Chamber of Commerce, and you know, and we obviously were more in sync uh, with labor on on most things, but not all things. And and that's and that's good. But you you need to disclose those conversations so that people have an understanding of who government is acting for. And in this administration, where you've got so many appointees who are just rife with financial their own financial conflicts of interest and then Mm -hmm. they're meeting with other people who have their own financial conflicts of interest Uh, it's a problem so Um, so
0: in in that particular case we've sought a preliminary injunction on behalf of the western organization of research councils and the next meeting is of the the royalty policy committee is scheduled to happen at the end of january so we'll we'll see what happens between now and then
3: one of the nice things people have actually uh, on Twitter been asking me, you know, th- what this, do all of these things disappear when Zinke leaves? Uh, and the answer, and Megan's shaking her head, no, they do not leave. And mm-hmm. I'm fairly sure uh, Raul Grijalva, I get that, who's the incoming chairman of the natural of the uh Resources Committee, Natural Resources, Natural Resources okay. Committee will will make sure that those are not, um, those don't go away. Nor do your lawsuits go away. That's correct. Yeah, there you go. So I, I think people sort of look at these 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 lawsuits, and I, I should interrupt. We are uh, with Megan Uzzell. Um She is the External Affairs Director for Democracy Forward. You can follow her on Twitter at democracy forward. Uh, this is Chris Liu guest hosting. Follow me on Twitter at chrisliu44. I, I think when people look at lawsuits. I'm not sure they understand the impact of how that is, and I think I think about the lawsuits you all did uh, on funding for teen pregnancy mm-hmm. prevention. Uh, that had a that had a major impact on uh, the way this program is implemented. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Sure. So, um, in summer of 2017, we saw that some anti evidence, anti science appointees at HHS um, decided to terminate. Three years into five, a five-year grant. Um, more than at that point in time, two hundred thirteen million dollars of grants that were going to cities and organizations across the country, and these grants were evidence-based, science-based, in order to try to help prevent teenage pregnancy. Um,
3: and we should stipulate: public health officials have essentially credited this program for taking unwanted teen pregnancies to historic lows. I mean, so these are really effective.
0: And the program has been lifted up by a bipartisan committee of policymakers who have said this has the gold star for making public policy that's based on evidence and based on science, not based on ideology. So we challenged, along with some other organizations challenged in court, the illegal termination of the grants, and we won um, five federal and five rulings. Federal judges said that the administration's action was unlaw- to terminate these grants was unlawful. I think the the thing that was shocking in that is the administration was not willing to relent. While they didn't appeal in those particular cases, they decided to issue a funding opportunity announcement to try to recompete funds, also based on an unlawful announcement. So it was contrary to the statute. It wasn't evidence based. It placed ideology over the evidence.
3: And, and we should and we should explain the ideology is is prioritizing abstinence over teen pregnancy prevention.
0: Right, Un- untested, untested, not scientifically-based abs- exa- That's right, yep. exactly. Yep. Um, so when HHS decided to try to take you know, that road, we challenged them in court, and along with uh, Planned Parenthood on behalf of some of their affiliates, and one in Oregon and the Southern District of New York. So seven times in a row, federal judges have found that HHS has acted unlawfully with regard to this, to this particular program.
3: It's important to understand, and we've talked a little bit about it in the earlier segments about the important role of the different branches of government. Mm -hmm. And we can stipulate that Congress has essentially done nothing over the last two years, uh, the Republican Congress, to check this administration. The federal courts have actually been pretty good on a lot of it. We haven't, I mean, you know, people suing the Trump administration certainly haven't won all of these suits, and. Obviously, the travel ban getting to the Supreme Court or the last version of it, um, that's one of the notable defeats. But in a lot of these district court actions, challenging actions of the Trump administration, you know, these are Republican judges, Democratic judges. And basically finding that there is a set of there's a way that you do business in the federal government. And you're just not even following the rules at all in what you're doing. You really are driving your own personal ideology over you're basically violating the rules and norms to drive your own personal ideology.
0: Right. There is a there is a rule of law and there is a way of going about driving policy change and policy outcomes. But it must be done in in accordance with the law. And just because the law doesn't work to your whim doesn't mean you can ignore it. So that's why we're holding the administration, the executive branch in particular, accountable when it chooses to make policy that is done in a way that violates the law.
3: Well, I I'll get, we'll, we'll do one more example and then we'll we'll hop into some lighter topics. I mean, I think about you all are suing on the Affordable Care Act as well. Yeah. We on on behalf of a couple of cities, essentially saying, "Look, you Trump administration, there is a law called the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. You are required to execute execute better. Implement this law and you you're doing everything you can to undermine that law."
0: Right. The president and the administration has a duty to enforce the law. The president doesn't get to make the law. Right. And in this particular case, on behalf of the cities of Baltimore and Columbus and Cincinnati and Chicago and individuals in Charlottesville, um, we have challenged the administration for not taking care um, and being responsible and enforcing the law as it's required to.
3: I'm curious, taking a step back, uh, January 3rd, there will be a sea change in this country with a House Democratic majority. Do you see the work of your organization changing with now? people on Capitol Hill, Democrats with subpoena power to get a lot of this and to, to both stop a lot of the, the these actions, but also to, to try to get information about them?
0: So, I mean, I think our work with regard to holding the administration accountable in the courts um, will not change. We will continue to be doing that to the extent that um, Congress is going to be stepping up and doing the oversight work that it should be doing appropriately and in, in either you know, regardless of, of who's in power, I think we we welcome that and um, are you know pleased to hear that many of the members are going to engage actively in the oversight and to, as they should and are going to do it in a responsible ways. So to the extent that we can um, work with them appropriately, you know that if there's that, those opportunities, you know, we will. And I think we saw in the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Act last year, 22 members of the House sign an amicus in support of of the program and in support of our suit against the um, against HHS. So and earlier this week, I don't know if you saw Heidi Probel's Prisbe- piece on again on Congress doing oversight on yeah. the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Act. So I think those are both really good examples. Mr. Grijalva is another good example.
3: Yeah. Uh, and Heidi's piece is a good one to look at. It's on the, the NBC News website. It's essentially how stymied multiple times on teen pregnancy. This administration continues to look for other ways to steer money into abstinence programs or abstinence research to the direct contradiction of the will of Congress. Uh, um, let me take another step back I mean we, we've um, we've talked a lot about oversight we've talked a lot about investigations we talked a lot about lawsuits. Uh, I, the sad thing is I, I, there's so many things like uh, you know we could take back we could take back the Senate and they could do oversight and we'd still have more th- I mean there's, there's mm-hmm. it, it's literally every single day. There's something else here. How do you all make decisions about in this vast realm of improprieties and potential illegalities, which ones you go after?
0: I mean, So we're looking, again, for the unlawful actions that the administration has taken. Um, we work with partners throughout the community and cities across the country. We represent um, cities and counties from, literally from coast to coast. And when we hear that the actions the administration has taken are harming individuals in the country, are harming the communities, as the teen teen pregnancy prevention program changes did, Um, as we've seen the state department's efforts to redefine public charge in a way that they did unlawfully, I think we're going to make a determination about whether or not... um, we're able to challenge those actions in court. If we can't challenge them in court for some reason, then I think we're going to look at, are there other ways that we can bring public <clears> attention <throat> to the actions the administration has taken?
3: Wouldn't it be great if they just followed the law and we could just all go out of business? Follow the law. Just follow Just follow the law. Is that so much to ask? Just follow yeah. the law.
0: It's, it's, it's one of the, you know, the list of rules you learn when you're in kindergarten Follow the law.
3: Well, we can stipulate that there's so much things that happen in this administration that they should simply follow the rules from kindergarten. Well, look, we, we are in the um, holiday season, and, and this is the last live show. I'm having my friends on. We could go deep into a very dark place about this administration. Uh, but, uh, you know, I want to sort of end on an upbeat note. What, what 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 cheered you up this year about the world of politics? Uh, and as you look forward to 2019, what gives you hope?
0: So, what cheered me up about the world of politics this year is just seeing the vast investment that people that may never have paid attention to politics in their communities and level of engagement are now. Um, it's you know their future. It's all of our future, and it was really nice to see. I think the renewed passion and interest from um, people from all walks of life, everywhere across the country. Um, I'm looking forward to 2019. I'm looking forward to Congress taking its oversight responsibilities seriously. I'm looking forward to a discussion about the start of discussions about the 2020 elections. Um, I'm cheered up by the colleagues I work with at Democracy Forward. It's a great organization. With plug away, plug totally away. We're committed. we're
3: okay. We're we're in the holiday season. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a a, a non political cause, but obviously plug away and Democracy Forward.
0: So, uh, D- Democracy Forward. Great group of colleagues best litigators I know, best people I know, next to the people I worked with at the Department of, of Labor. Course, of that, course. will go
3: that's, that, that's a given. Um,
0: and non-political cause, yep. Fort DuPont Ice Arena.
3: Fort DuPont Fort Ice Arena. Fort DuPont Ar- Ice Arena. You have, you, how many kids you have playing hockey? One or just you?
0: Two of my three, and the third only because he's not old enough to be on
3: skates really yet. We'll say two and a half.
0: There you go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> He's got one foot on the ice. He,
0: he knows how to swing a hockey stick.
3: So. I, I, I am not a hockey player, although I know that people who commit to hockey, you, you basically, your life changes. I mean, the patterns of your life, because it's all You about, learn
0: how to stay warm in an ice rink. It's
3: all about ice time, and, and you get yes. ice time at the oddest um, things. Um, yes. Yeah, I,
0: so Fort DuPont Ice Arena is a fantastic um, ice rink. Over in in Southeast, they embrace the community. It's not just about competitive hockey. Um, It's a culture of um, education and sportsmanship and embracing schools. They teach kids to skate as part of their PE programs. They run mentoring programs. It is a a great great ice rink that is so much more about than just hockey. It's about the community.
3: And it's amazing how hockey is is actually sort of—and I know this because I sat down with some folks from the NHL recently. I mean, they really are making a push to try to not only increase the diversity of the sport, but also just to to increase the number of people, in particular in cities and in non-cold cities, to embrace the sport. And that just hasn't been the case. You
2: know what's really interesting? You talk about the NHL. One of the most exciting teams in the NHL is uh, in Nashville. Mm-hmm. I mean, they love the NHL team in
3: Nashville. You don't necessarily think of it as a hockey town. The Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah. Like we could go, I mean, look, we could go yeah. deep into hockey. No, I mean, look, I, I split my time between DC and Seattle, and they're like wildly over the top crazy because they're getting the next uh, NHL mm-hmm. expansion team. And um, the big issue right now in Seattle, we're, in the, we're just going to diverge at this point now, uh, <laughs> is what the name of the team should be. There really
2: is only one answer, Chris.
3: The Seattle SuperSonics. Well, we should bring them back. That was actually one <laughs> of the things. Is how do we get the Sonics back? But it's everything from the Seattle like there were there were coffee ones, the Seattle grunge was something thrown out there. <laughs> uh they wanted to do something with the, the you know, uh Mount Rainier. They it was they were they're all flipping and then they'll end up with something silly, who knows actually. Um, Well, look, uh, Megan, it is so wonderful to be here uh, with you. Um, You and I worked together for many years together in the Obama administration, and and I'm saying thank you to my friends, but also just for continuing to do this work, because there's frankly a lot of other things that we could do um, that would be far more lucrative than continuing to fight (laughs) against these people. Um, we've just been joined by Megan Uzel, the External Affairs Director for Democracy Forward. Uh, and we'll be back with, in a couple of minutes with Simonanda, Nanda, the CEO of the Democratic National Committee.
0: Thank you, Chris.
2: Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast. Search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes and catch the highlights from every show.
3: Uh, welcome back and good morning. This is Chris Liu guest hosting for Bill on Friday morning. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu.com. Forty-four. This is the last live show of the year. There's some wonderful pre-recorded material. We plugged last segment about the drinking episode, which I was not invited to, Peter. But it... ne- next time we do this often, right? Uh, uh, well, we, we, we drink in. a lot and, and, and record. Well, we pre- what What are some of the other shows that the listeners can tune into next week?
2: Uh, we brought in some of our favorite White House reporters. We did a roundtable about the year uh, in Trump, uh, which. Yes, we could not, do multiple shows. That's that. going to surprise you. There right. was a lot to talk about. Uh, we also talked to some congressional reporters uh, about what Congress got done and also how Congress is going to look a lot different when we yeah. come back from break uh, next year. Uh, we also had a very spirited debate about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. With someone who actually has numbers on this. I mean, they it is people.
3: it is to the extent you consider, like, L- Love Actually is considered a Christmas movie because it sort of concludes— it happens at Christmas, although other than the fact that it's snowing at what they consider Dulles Airport, I'm not sure right. it really is.
2: The correct answer is, yes. uh, spoiler alert, Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. <laughs> but we go through the whole thing with uh, Joanna Piacenza from Morning Consult, who had—they did a poll about how Americans feel— about whether or not it's a Christmas movie, and then we also talked about some other great Christmas movies that are out there. Uh, we're going to have that one scheduled uh, next week as well. So there, there's just a ton of stuff. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast. Yeah. Just go to Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you get podcasts. If you're subscribed to the Bill Price Show, we'll just shoot it right out to you every morning as we put it live. It'll show up right there on your phone or your computer or your iPad or wherever you listen to your uh, your podcast.
3: Wonderful. Well, thank you for that plug, and please follow the show on BP at BP Show. On Twitter. So we're here with Seema Nanda, one of my favorite people. I actually said that, I think, to the last two people, but Seema really is one of my favorite people. He said it uh, to me this morning. I did too, say it so. to I. And uh, Sema is the CEO of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. You can follow them on Twitter at The Democrats, and you can follow Seema on Twitter at Seema Nanda. I need to get Seema more followers. She's, you know, you've it's grown, but not as much as it should have.
5: I should be tweeting more, Chris, but it is a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you.
3: So Sema, I used to work for Sema. Sema was uh, <laughs> uh, the chief of staff at the Department of Labor when I was there. She has also been the executive vice president of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, or civil and human rights, and was also a longtime career attorney, knows a lot about immigration, and we'll talk a little bit about immigration. So you've been on the job at as CEO for about six months or so?
5: That's right. It probably
3: seems like dog years.
5: It's, it seems like a long time and uh, no time at all, all at the same time.
3: So before you started, I said you were going to have the ultimate report card. And your report card shows up on November 6th or the morning of November 7th. And based yeah. on that report card, you guys get an A plus and a real A plus, not like a Donald Trump A plus.
5: <laughs> Chris, thank you. We're, we're very proud of um, all that we've achieved and all that we achieved with our sister committees and the amazing candidates that ra- ran and the amazing uh, campaigns. And all of the people who got out there, all of the new resistance groups, the groups fighting on the ground, this campaign was all about the grassroots, but very proud of everything that we've all accomplished together. And boy, did our country need to accomplish uh, it.
3: We did. I, I, I've i been telling people it's like the ship of democracy is righted itself a little bit, but it's still a little It's way off kilter at the moment. We've got a lot more work to do. It
5: seems like Rome is burning as we speak. (laughs) Um, It has been a crazy week uh, going out out with a bang for the year. Um, So we were
3: just talking about this. So you've been in government. I've been in government when we've had shutdowns. This is a really disruptive thing. To shut down the federal government
5: it's incredibly disruptive as you and I both know it's incredibly expensive and as we both know Chris from our time at the Department of Labor it has ripple effects on the economy going forward for months and months I remember when we worked together at labor we were trying to figure out some blips as to why certain things didn't happen with our enforcement agencies as to what happened in the economy and so much of that can be traced to a shutdown which is so disruptive for everybody and and the sad thing is that many people, the people who are most uh, important to our government and our security have to keep working right. and that instability that it provides to all of those uh, federal workers about not knowing whether they're going to get a paycheck. It's truly horrific.
3: No, and, and, and it's the interesting thing, and we talked about this earlier, since 1980 when essentially these series of shutdowns have begun. Uh, Prior to this year, we've never had a shutdown in which the same party controlled the White House and Congress, and we will have it twice in the same year. And people need to understand, Republicans control Congress. they they, can, they There's no excuse for them not getting a budget done, and it's just their mere incompetence.
5: That's right. There, there were plenty of opportunities that this president had to do something on the border and do it in a... A way that made sense if he wanted to. And I think as leader Pelosi pointed out so eloquently in that kind of surreal uh, open (laughs) uh, meeting last week, so much other news that uh, it was an extraordinary day when it happened. But as she so eloquently said, you control You control the Senate. You control the House. uh, You are the President. Uh, So this is truly extraordinary.
3: She's such a badass. I can say that. You're you're like You're you're like still a person who has to watch. I mean, she's a badass.
5: She's amazing. She's amazing. (laughs) You'll say amazing.
3: I'll say she's a badass. um,
5: I'll say it, Chris. She's a (laughs) badass. I I I mean, as as a woman uh, watching her uh, function. In that room was she fact checking in aw- real inspiring. time. I mean, she that, is. It's, it's amazing, and people aren't doing this no. to Trump enough. And so, to watch that live, um, it was remarkable and very proud. And- so,
3: you and uh, Tom Perez, we all work for Tom Perez. We, the Tom Perez theory of life is he he gets a bus and he puts the people on the bus that he likes, and what and we take whatever seat, i.e., whatever job. Um, you and Tom deserve a lot of credit for what you've done. But I will tell you that literally. Not more than like two days after Election Day, I got my first phone call from somebody asking for more money again. Not from you all. You guys actually have, well, actually, it's not true. I've gotten from you all. (laughs) No, but because there are always elections. Uh, in 2019, we because in Virginia, you and I are both residents of the Commonwealth of Virginia. We have elections every single year.
5: We do, and <laughs> we have an incredibly important opportunity right. in Virginia, as you know, Chris. This year, I mean, Virginia is getting bluer and bluer. Right. I am so proud to live in the state, uh, and we have the opportunity to flip the House and the, the Senate, Senate in Virginia, which is truly remarkable. Uh, but on your on your broader point about everybody you know, coming back so soon, we've been we've been trying to do a lot of thank yous and a lot of just explaining what we did, uh, talking to people, um, making people understand about what our what our contributions are and how we're looking at the next cycle. But the reason people are coming back so quickly is we still have Trump in the White House. Yeah. Uh, we still uh, have a major hurdle to overcome in 2020 and getting him out, um, and that work starts now. And he's been building; uh, he has a hundred million dollar war chest already. And we got to start tomorrow. Actually, we had to s- we started last month. Yeah, but-, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to continue tomorrow.
3: And and, and it's uh, I, before we leave Virginia. I mean, I think it's important to understand when uh, when Ralph Northam won as governor. When we came to essentially within a coin toss of taking back the House of Delegates. That really set in motion the expansion of Medicaid, which had been stymied under Republican control for years. And as a result of that, as of two days ago, 185,000 people in Virginia have signed up for Medicaid. They're expecting 400,000. That's the real difference that happens when Democrats are elected to office.
5: That That's absolutely right, Chris. I mean, we see that when Democrats are elected, this is real change in people's lives, people actually getting health care and change happening for the better, and I think sometimes we need to make sure we're talking about leading with our values, leading with real policy changes that affect people on the ground. But you're right, when Democrats get elected, lives get better for people.
3: Yeah, and before we turn the book on 2018, obviously, We've had two very troubling power grabs by Republicans in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. We still have a disputed House race right now in North Carolina that we have to deal with. Um, Anything you can tell us about, in particular, that North Carolina race, but- I assume we're done with these power grabs by Republican legislatures.
5: Yeah. I mean, what is what has happened in Wisconsin, what's happening happening in Michigan with essentially lame duck Republicans trying to strip newly elected in Michigan and Wisconsin, newly fairly elected governors, secretaries of state of powers that they have held when they held uh, both the governorship and uh, the houses is extraordinary, unprecedented. And pretty disgusting. And I think when we think about uh, this, these last two years as really the breakdown uh, of our democracy with everything that Trump is doing and our friend Megan talking a lot about how she's fighting back groups like hers. But this is you see their whole party doing this. uh, And it's truly remarkable, extraordinary. I'm glad people are challenging it. But one of the ways that we think about this in the party is down ballot races really matter. State legislatures They are incredibly important, and I think we're so uh, proud to have worked uh, as part of uh, many other groups, but to really focus on uh, state legislative races, because we see what happens when you don't have state legislatures. You get things like uh, voter restriction laws, things that really affect our democracy long term, and so much law is formed at these state levels, Medicaid expansion, education policy, uh, environmental policy, so they are incredibly important.
3: And and look, we I think we need to be fair and acknowledge that taking our eye off the ball, in large part during the Obama administration on state legislatures was a huge problem. We lost about a thousand state legislative seats, and which has really set the stage for a lot of the things that we're fighting back. And so, you know, I applaud uh, Tom Perez, you and others at the DNC for embracing this idea of really competing in races from the school board to the Senate because. And it's not only just about the policies you've talked about, but it's about developing the next uh, the next set of national leaders. And they're, they're all going to come up through state and local races as well.
5: That's abso- absolutely right. Uh, people said for a long time uh, who are our next leaders, and that people aren't talking like that anymore. Certainly not with our, no. our presidential crop, but what we are seeing at the state level is remarkable with this focus on training candidates, bringing candidates along, and making sure we are paying as much attention to state legislative races, school board races. It happens at every level. Uh, so I'm really proud of our what our party is doing. Uh, our colleagues at the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee have done an extraordinary job in uh, really working hard on all of these uh, incredibly important down-ballot races.
3: So you mentioned the presidential race. It. it I don't know that any of us are emotionally ready to go through this, but I think it, I, it, it feels like a little bit of game of chicken right now. I think when one candidate announces like 19 others will join in. Uh, but I know that the DNC is working hard right now to, I think, correct some of the perceptions that came out of 2016, again, right or wrong, um, uh, and and try to set a, a, a series of reforms in place that increase the feelings of fairness and transparency. Um, First of all, talk about this one that came out I think last week about neutrality among staff.
5: Sure, so uh, last week, Chris, we put out a staff neutrality policy and this had been in place before, but it wasn't so explicit. We wanted to do it really early. Uh, we've been bringing folks in who've worked in prior cycles to talk to our staff. What is the building like? What kind of issues they'll face? But we wanted to set the ground rules really early. And our we have asked our entire staff to be neutral, not to pick a candidate, not to show favoritism, and to really not put their thumb on the scale uh, because we know even the perception of that uh, can really Uh, Hurt our trust with the party, which has been uh, incredibly important that we work at rebuilding. So we're very focused on that. Uh, Yesterday, you may have saw we. I was going to say,
3: but before God help the person who has to police that one. I mean, you guys are going to be wandering around cubicles, making sure there are no bumper stickers making. I mean, yeah, right. You're going to have to enforce all that. I mean, that's not easy to do, and I applaud you all for trying to do that.
5: Uh, well, people tell stories in the building of how uh, Howard Dean would hear about something happening on social media and would be walking down the hallway oh, to having <laughs> a talk with someone. So uh, there's going to there's going to be a lot of things that yeah. happen, and uh, we want to set forth early, you know, what those rules are, and then work, you know, work with yeah. our staff. We have an extraordinary staff, and uh, I have I have no doubt that they are up, <laughs> up for this task, Chris.
3: All right. I'm going to be monitoring all those guys on social media. So, um, all right. So yesterday, big announcement. Um, boy, we have to do presidential debates. I mean, my God, like it feels so long from away from now, but it's really not, I guess.
5: Yeah. I, we we announced yesterday that uh, we will be doing a, a total of about 12 debates, six in 19, six in 20. I know it seems early. Um but one of the things that we really wanted to do and that that Tom Perez had committed to do about a year ago was to get out early on the debate schedule and not to wait and have all the candidates be in and, you know, make it seem like uh, this is sort of cooked for one candidate or another. We really wanted to set that framework early and really focus our North Star is, has been uh, this president has taken up a lot of oxygen. Right. No matter who is running, Chris, we will have an extraordinary field. And I think all of these uh, candidates will be highlighting the incredible difference that Democrats offer uh, compared to what the GOP is offering. So our goal is to really make sure that people are able to watch, people are able to participate, and that early on candidates really have an opportunity to showcase who they are to the American voters.
3: So I know two issues you all try to address and, and and it's going to be a challenge. One is what happens when there are too many people to fit on one debate stage, which I think will likely be the case early on. And then I think the other issue is how you deal with you know sort of like unofficial type the, uh, debates that fall outside of this range of accepted this range of authorized debates. How, do you, how are you going to deal with both of those issues?
5: Sure. So so with the with the idea of how many candidates are running, there's still obviously a lot up in the air. We only have a a few people in as of now. And so I don't think anyone really knows how big our field is is going to be. Uh, But one of the things that we we did in our announcement yesterday is uh, we left open the possibility that for definitely for the early debates, we would do them on consecutive nights. And to avoid what happened uh, in the 16 cycle with Republicans and kind of having a kid's table, sometimes (laughs) televised, sometimes not. That was a subject of controversy. Uh, We did set forth that we would do a random draw for people who qualified and not just rely on polling. We'll be looking at other criteria uh, early on, such as grassroots uh, fundraising, some some sort of measure of actual grassroots support.
3: And then what about the issue when? you know, you've got some special interest group that says, hey, we're going to do our debate here. We want you all to start participating. And then everyone is, again, it's a little bit of a game of chicken. Then one person says, fine, I'll do it. Then 10 others jump in. I mean, h- how do you please that?
5: Yeah, I mean, one thing we, we said is that people can do forums. Uh, they can participate in forums, which I think is helpful because that is really the format that a lot of this other um, activity takes place in. We have asked... Uh, We have asked candidates not to participate in other debates and, you know, some things we're just going to have to take uh, one day at a time, Chris.
3: Um, What else? um, And obviously, look, I mean, a lot of what we are dealing with right now are are lingering sort of feelings that came out of the 2016 primary contest. Other reforms on the horizon uh, or or, or these two things, what we're going to see at this point?
5: So I I think we'll be laying out some more about how we're going to go about things uh, in the 2020 cycle over the next coming months. I mean, our focus is really making sure that uh, we have a process where our candidates can navigate really well uh, with the support that we provide. And our focus at the DNC is, as you know, Chris, is really to make sure that our nominee has what they need to win. Uh, One thing uh, we don't think about enough is Trump uh, had really little. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there were college students running yeah. a lot of his states, even some really key states. Um, but the RNC had a lot, uh, and they the their base had been investing in the RNC. They had uh, really sort of created a runway for whoever their nominee was, um, and. Trump sort of got on that runway and was, you know, I don't want to talk, I don't want to get into all the reasons why he won, but he got on that runway, which he uh, certainly couldn't have won without that RNC support. So I think we're really focused on, you know, we expect a robust field. We expect an extraordinary uh, crop of candidates. Uh, We look forward to highlighting them, working with them, supporting them, but we're really focused on making sure that they have what they need when they are the eventual nominee, whoever that person is.
3: I want to take a step back from talking about the DNC and more putting your hat on as somebody who knows a lot about immigration. We're we're, we're, we're yeah. about to shut down the federal government over an idiotic uh, demand over a wall. Uh, yeah. And 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 I and I always say this when I talk to people that I I I think if if you put Democrats and Republicans in a room together, you know. Uh, Rational, there there is a solution on immigration, and and I know that we as a party have pushed comprehensive immigration reform. Um, you know, we've also talked about border security, smart border security. I I feel like what's happening right now in the country is we're, we're getting down to really sort of dumb solutions. I mean, this is the wall becomes a proxy for everything else, and you see the harshness of this administration's policies. I mean, we have a seven-year-old kid that was uh, died in in custody and. And I know that this has really become one of those sharp distinctions between the parties. And I think it's this in this era of kind of really polarized debate, we can't find a rational solution. And I believe that there is a rational solution on this issue.
5: I I absolutely think there is a there are rational solutions on this issue, Chris. Um, What this administration is doing on uh, its immigration policy policy is horrific. It's abhorrent. Uh, It is a violation of international law. Uh, Some of it even gets lost in the news. I think it was just yesterday uh, where the administration said that people coming to the border uh, applying for asylum will now be waiting in Mexico, which is, uh, uh, I think there will be a number of challenges on that, um, both in terms of U.S. law as well as international law. But Truly horrific policies uh, and the death of a seven-year-old girl in custody from dehydration is absolutely abhorrent. You even have an admission by this administration that they are not set up for children, uh, that this is not the type of uh, individual they can support. I mean, truly abhorrent how long it took to come out, uh, but it is a terrible situation right now. And and to your point, I mean, we were so close we in 2013, so close. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, really close. And and in fact, I think the votes were there. Yes. Uh, if uh, it had just been put on the floor. But... No,
3: I mean, look, the votes. I, the votes were there in 2006. The votes were there in 2007, 2013. There is a bipartisan consensus on immigration that 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 deals with DACA, that deals with both legal immigration, that deals with undocumented people, that 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 satisfies. Farm interest, business interests—there there is a deal there. The problem right now is we've gotten into this. You have a president who is fear mongering on a caravan, who's coming up with simplistic solutions around a wall. Meanwhile, he himself is hiring, you know, um, undocumented workers at his own facility. He's getting foreign workers in uh, for Mar-a-Lago and, 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 and it's hard in this, this setting to have a rational debate about immigration and it's just getting wrapped into so many other things.
5: Yeah, I mean, Trump ran on the wall. He ran on a a chant, uh, chant, build the wall and lock her up. Yes. Uh, and you know we've we've seen where both of those things have gone. But I think what we've seen is in, his increasing isolation, uh, and he's he's reeling right now. So. Uh, sort of going back on his agreement with this deal on um, funding the government and going back to the wall, I think, is a last-ditch attempt to sort of find someone, uh, find his base. Because if he loses his base, there's really not a whole lot left.
3: It is amazing if, if you know folks look at the timeline of how we've gotten to this shutdown. Uh, you know, we we were sort of rehashing. I mean, we had the uh, Oval Office meeting uh, last week, or maybe two weeks ago, uh, where Trump basically said, I, I'm happy to shut down the government. Uh, then over the past week, has basically pulled back from that. Senate basically passes a CR. Uh, everyone thinks that's fine. Right-wing and Coulter, Drudge, others start killing. Yeah. Mark Meadows start killing Trump on this. Trump realizes like, hey, I can't lose my base. Does a 180. Yes. Uh, and this is where we are that essentially cable news, uh, a right-wing echo chamber is what is driving... Us to a government shutdown.
5: Yeah, I think he actually unfollowed uh, he did, Ann he Coulter. He did follow
3: Ann Coulter. On, <laughs> I mean,
5: it's crazy. This is our president. Um, I to be
3: clear, I've never followed Ann Coulter, so I can't unfollow her. But I would, <laughs> if I could, I would unfollow her. I followed her just to unfollow. Uh, just to wish that.
2: We should tell all our listeners, just follow her and then five Uh, seconds later, unfollow her. It's a really good feeling.
5: I I think my young teenagers uh, probably engage in uh, less destructive (laughs) social media behavior, but uh, truly a remarkable week.
3: So we've got about a minute and a half left. And um, I'm trying to end since our last live show of the year and on a more positive note, it's the time of giving. It's a time of sharing. We were laughing. There's a GoFundMe campaign to fund the wall. We would stipulate that is not a good way to give your resources. Um, anything that, you know, you want to plug that people should support um, either before the end of the year or the beginning of next year?
5: Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. I was hoping we could at some point talk about movies because I believe deeply that Die Hard is a Christmas Uh-oh. movie. Oh, um, no! Oh, no! Um, <laughs> and I just want to come to the See, end well, of Die Hard. There is a scene where Bruce Willis, I think hugs there is a christmas tree and there's a reunion with the wife yes so point number one
3: (laughs) uh we should have just gone there at the beginning uh, we should
5: have um you got all serious but serious is good there's there's big things happening in the world so so first i'll say you know uh there it's unfortunate but campaign season has has started already and Uh, really having people stay in. I think Republicans often get this intuitively that they have to stay in at all times. Money at the end is not the same as money at the beginning. Uh, I am a civil rights attorney at heart, funding groups like the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights uh, and a whole bunch of other very worthy civil and human rights organizations uh, is always a good idea and just giving lots of hugs to your family because we all need a break.
3: Giving lots of hugs to your family, that's perhaps the best way to end this show. Menanda the CEO of the DNC, thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. I want to thank all of our guests. I want to thank the wonderful listeners. Uh, I want to wish everyone a, a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, uh, Happy Holidays, and please give generously to the causes that matter to this you. This
2: is The Bill Press Show.